welcome to episode 180 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Well, you know, we made that little sort of silly, jokey prediction about the world being like Lord of the Flies uh, when we recorded with Les two weeks ago before the world became Lord of the Flies. (laughs) So I'm not sure whether I feel vindicated or a little embarrassed about that joke, but uh, it's crazy out there. It's crazy out there. Well, thankfully, we don't have to stone you. That's the first thing. That's true. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. I mean, I'm not claiming to be a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I, I guess I was unintentionally spot on on that one. You were certainly prescient, if nothing else. That's a good word. I like that Thank word. Thank you. I'm trying to bring it back. But in second, you're right. It we are li- I, Most of the time, honestly, now I've just kind of gone to this, this phase where I'm thinking, what a time to be alive. Yeah, but not like in a good way right now. <laughs> Like most of the time when we say that, we're like, we're talking about some cool technology. We're like, what a time to be alive. My car, my car can tell me the temperature and also start my oven and make me popcorn with coconut oil all by the time I get home. We're like, what a time to be alive right now. It's like, man, what a time to be alive. Because the world is It's a little bit of both. You know, like I think it cuts both ways. Obviously, this is like unprecedented times in all of humanity, but it's also a little bit of kind of like in the midst of that, for instance, being able to connect with people and to live stream services, all this kind of stuff. Like think about if this had occurred 30 years ago, 40 years ago, like how different this would all really be. You know, what's really funny, maybe not funny uh, as much as frustrating, which is the opposite of funny. I don't know why I said funny. We're doing great Um, so far. You know, I'm I'm a historian, so like I'm interested in things that have happened in the past, letting that inform our present. And one of the things that has come out loud and clear in this COVID-19 thing in the church particularly is that most people have no concept of of actually like what's happened in history. So like, you know, we talked about it, about how like some churches are continuing to meet. Uh, they're doing so for biblical conviction. That's fine. Good on them. It's it's their call, their, their congregations. Some are choosing not to. But what I'm seeing is a lot of people who are basically acting as though this is a brand new situation that's never, ever happened in the world because it's never happened in our lifetime. Right. But it's funny because in the Spanish flu of 1918, like th- exactly the same thing. The state shut down gathering, churches weren't meeting, like exactly the same thing. And actually that's part of what stopped the the pandemic of the Spanish flu is that people actually didn't go out of their houses, but they're acting like this has never happened. And and the other thing is like the church, the people who are really rah, rah, we have to meet no matter what, this is the reformed way we're going to do it. Cause we're reformed are ignoring the fact that like every reformed pastor in the, like the ages of the black plague canceled their services when the plague was in town. Like they continued right. to visit people, but they didn't have their congregations meet. So I just think it's, it's funny how people are just ignorant of the fact that this is not really all that new of a thing. It's just new for us because pandemics come around about every hundred years or so. So none of us have lived through it. I just thought that that was interesting and frustrating all at the same time. Well, it's like that old quote, which I think I've disclosed before. There's no new news, just new news happening to or old news happening to new people. Yep. And yeah, yeah, there's a tendency to be like, it's never happened to me before. And so obviously it's brand new for that reason. Yeah. And have a sense that there's some kind of like snobbery because it's in my lifetime. But I'm with you on that. That's this is not my affirmation. And we're going to get to those in a second. But it's kind of I'm going to sneak one in. This is why I think I've been drawn so recently to rereading and really diving deep into the Puritans again, because this is a group that was well acquainted, as we've said before, with suffering and with death in particular, but especially with mass sickness. So you have like dudes like Thomas Brooks who were part of the plague in London. And while many pastors fled from that area, he did... Uh, suspend like actual meetings of his church, but he also found ways to minister and to be loving in the midst of that. And so there's so much we can read and and really learn from these dudes because they were writing and living in a time that we actually reminiscent of our own. And that's actually a really weird thing to understand. Like these guys are trying to exercise their piety and their spirituality in a way, in a society, in a situation that is like weirdly just like our own. And so I'm thinking to myself, listen, I want to rely and read on what they wrote because I'm trying to process it it myself. And these guys have already been through it to some extent. So 
I've really been drawn back to the Puritans as a result of this, but that's also just because they are awesome. I, they I don't are. know. I don't want to like fanboy in the Puritans too much, but can we ask, is it really possible to fanboy in the Puritans too much? I don't think it is. I mean, so, some of the Puritans, like <laughs> what I, what I don't like about the Puritans is that it is, and you don't really realize this until you start to dig. It really is a mixed bag. There's some people who would be considered Puritans that are actually really sketchy. But yeah, like the the stuff you get, like your um, affirmation from the episode with less of the Puritan paperbacks, like you cannot go wrong with the Puritan oh, paperbacks. Oh no, those are so like good. There's, there's not a single one of those that's not, not only like is the document itself really good, but the way that it's been put together by Banner True Trust is is epic. So yeah, those are like free affirmations favorite, today. Do you have a, well, now I'm just on this track. Do you have a favorite Puritan? I'm a big fan of William Perkins. Oh, of course. Yeah, classic. Yeah, I've always been a fan of William Perkins. I think the first Puritan work that I ever read was The Art of Prophesying. And to me, it just all the sudden preaching and the way that uh, the scriptures work in, in the church all of a sudden made sense in a way that I hadn't before. So I'm very much uh, indebted to him, and I think he's probably my favorite. What about you? I would say for the dress, for style, it's got to be John Owen. Oh, and yeah, then for, for sure. every everything else, John Flavel. I think for yeah. like preaching and for like authenticity and expression of the scriptures in a way that is both profound and was meant to really experientially, can you hear the segue coming? Experientially yeah. lead the heart into a closer relationship with Jesus. I just love that. And I love that like that dude, all of them, this is basically they're all of them, all their stories is they're all getting constantly kicked out of the church because they're trying to preach the gospel. And then like in John Flavel's case, like he goes and preaches in the woods and like people just come from all over and stand for hours in the middle of the night to hear him preach in the woods. That is banging. Yeah. I mean, there's something about that situation. That's awesome. I'd like to think I would be the one getting up at 1130 at night and going off and tracking down where he is in some wooded area. But I just think that kind of commitment and passion for the Lord to see that kind of preaching go forward is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's, uh, what's really funny. I keep on saying this as a joke, but I think one of these days I'm actually going to do it. I want to get, uh, William Perkins visual catechism tattooed on my back. That thing is huge. I know. That's why it has to go on my back. Couldn't put it on like my arm. I mean, my arms are, I am, (laughs) my arms are giant, but no, I like my back. I, I think that'd be a pretty sweet tattoo. Actually, that would be an epic tattoo. Like if I saw somebody with that tattoo, I'd be like, it's, it's over. You win. You win skin art. Well, see, here's what you do. You go to your tattoo artist and you bring them this thing and you say, make this look really cool. And they'll add like the flourishings and the embellishments on it that make it look like, can you imagine like, you know, it's already really like geometric, like making it even more like angular and geometric, man. We're, we're the the biggest nerds ever. (laughs) That's kind of our jam though. At this point, I've just embraced it. What a time to be alive. I know for sure. Well, since that was like the, uh, the freebie affirmations segment to the show. Let's uh, let's stay positive today because there's already enough negative stuff going on in the world. Let's just do affirmations today. I love it. That's a great idea. So kick us off. What are you affirming? So I'm affirming American ingenuity. And what Ooh. I mean by this is, you know, you're hearing these stories all across the world of you know, hospitals running out of ventilators in Italy. The doctors are having to basically triage like it was wartime. We're starting to see a little bit of that in the U.S., particularly in parts of New York City that are already starting to get really hit hard. And I I don't want to make a negative comment about the rest of the world because I'm not sure why it didn't go down this way. But it seems like the first thing that Americans did was start to figure out interesting ways to like to, to beat this thing. So like we're pioneering new ways to utilize two ventilators to support two patients. That's already starting to get approved by the FDA. There's new therapies that are being researched. Uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock, which is the hospital I work at, basically just like was like the test isn't fast enough. Let's make a new test and like researched and created their own rapid response test for the coronavirus. That's almost as accurate um, from what I can understand as the uh, the state test. And it's like three hours instead of three days. So it seems like once this hit America, Americans were like, all right, well, you're coming at us. Let's come at you. And they just they just decided to invent a bunch of new stuff to get us through this. So I'm affirming American ingenuity because it really just seems like I wish maybe that America didn't wait until it was already in a terrible situation for this to kick in. But it does seem like once America gets kind of backed into the corner, 
all of a sudden we shine and we figure out like how to make the best of a bad situation. Yeah, you're right. That's pretty good. I mean, there's been so many different people, organizations, companies, institutions all around the world that have almost changed course like midstream to be like amazingly helpful. So yeah, I'm thinking of companies like New Balance that were like making sneakers last week and now apparently are making masks. They yeah. use some of the materials. They realize they could leverage that. Same with, and this is near dear to my heart because there's no baseball yet. But the company called Fanatics that makes the baseball uniforms has been making masks and basically all kinds of like um, scrubs and all kinds of other paraphernalia for medical professionals to help meet that gap and that shortage. I do love that. There's something about that where I feel like what we're seeing and what you're expressing is really this common grace of God. That that's actually what we're seeing in this moment in time. Yeah, I think that's probably right. My affirmation is pretty close to that, actually. It's it's not too far off. And it's just it. that I've been so blessed to see how people have really decided to help one another. And uh, this happened to me this week because in the course of like maybe a lot of people being reassigned to work from home, which has been an adventure in and of itself, Yeah, I discovered in the process of some technical difficulties that my wireless router is 14 years old. Like I just... <laughs> I guess I just forgot about it and it's always mostly worked, although we've had a lot of problems recently, which prompted me to look at it, but it is 14 years old. Like it, it predates the iPhone in my marriage. So it's like a bachelor (laughs) router. Like it's, it's been around for a long time. And so what happened was it more or less kind of broke. It also explains like, I'd always complain to you about how like, Hey, does it take you like 45 minutes to upload an episode of the (laughs) Brotherhood? And I was like, no, no. So basically I've been living in a world where my internet is crazy slow and it's my own fault. So all this say, I did this quick test. Like I didn't know you could even do this. Is how embarrassing it is. I went to like speedtest.net, did a test and my uploading or sorry, my downloading was like a little bit less than 10. And I feel like I'd done this before and I just made me mad at my internet service provider. Cause I just thought they were being weasels with me. And so I tried online. I went and did what everybody else in the world is doing and tried to order a router. And of course, like I went to Amazon first. Amazon has like two complications now. One is of course, and legitimately they're prioritizing the type of things they're shipping and they're going with essential items. The router, apparently not an essential item. (laughs) Um, I really can't, I really can't complain. Right. I mean, we're trying to help the well-being and safety of all people all over the world. And I, I understood that I was like, okay, no, I can't get a router. But the, the second problem was that nobody had a router to sell because everybody was having the same experience I was. And so like, I was like two months out literally from like when they said they could ship it. So I was like, all right. So I went to, I, I, I actually in the process reached out to a friend. I had my wife reach out to like a friend at her work who was, did all of their networking. And I said to, to Jen, my wife, I said, send a picture of the router to this guy and see if this is thing is salvageable. So she took a picture and she sent it. And the guy literally texted back. He's like, stop messing with me. Send a picture of your actual router. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. He was like, is that really the thing you're using? And we were like, yeah, that's it. And he was like, that thing is so old. It's like, I forget exactly what he said, but it's like, it doesn't, it's not even like dual channel. So like it can't. Yeah. Yeah. It was, he used all these words. Megahertz were part of it. It just got out of hand. (laughs) And so he was like, use this site. So I went to that site and tried to order something. It took a week for the payment to be processed. And I'm still waiting for them to say it was going to be shipped. So in the midst of all of this, I'm getting to the the actual affirmation. I, I was feeling very dejected because I'm trying to work from home. And my wife and I were playing this game where she was working from home and like, she would get on a conference call and then, I don't know, I'd check my email and I would just kick her right out of that call because <laughs> the internet was like, we can only do uh, one thing at a time. Your router is awful. Um, and so I was expressing all this frustration in a team meeting. And one of my colleagues said, I actually have an extra router. It's brand new in a box. It's five years old. And I was like, well, that's nine years younger than my current router. So that's <laughs> definitely an improvement. But she, on her own volition, said, I will come and deliver this thing to you. Uh, we'll get it, we'll get you up and running. And it was just so kind. And I, I think, again, we're seeing like the common grace of God for when people realize that when others are in actual need, there is an inclination. It's not that there's some kind of good, of course, within us, but there is this, still this wonderful, overwhelming, overlapping common grace of God that there is a desire, I think, to be helpful and to be loving. Um, and only in times like this where I think we're really pressed do we get to see some of that. It's yeah. not our normative position. 
But at the same time, I'm just so encouraged and I want to encourage everybody that's listening to just be helpful in little ways. That router has like changed my life because my Man. download speed went from like just under 10 to like just over 90. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> like it's it, so funny because when you texted me the other day and was like, "What? what's your internet speed? And I was like, I don't know, like 125 megabytes download. And you're like, what? I get 10. I was like, yeah, I mean, my phone doesn't get that much, but I can check. I was like, yeah, I think it's like 150 is our is our threshold. Now, like no router in the world is going to give you 150 megabytes download. It's kind of a racket from the internet company. But but yeah, your your router is... Is was ancient. It I remember thinking that when I awful. visited you last, I was like, "Man, is that a is that a Linksys 802.11b <laughs> router?" Yeah. I was like, "Whatever, yes. whatever." Yes, it was. I just it always worked, so I never really gave it much mind. And what's funny is, you just did the same thing that everybody I reached out to had done to. Because I was like, I need to take a survey real quick to make sure I'm not overreacting. And also, so if like I call my internet provider, they're not going to be like, "You crazy? What yeah. are you doing with your equipment?" So. Everybody I reached out to was like, hey, what do you get? Like trying to be like really kind of coy and just chill about the whole thing. So I didn't like bias the situation. And everybody would, would say the same thing you do. They'd be like, well, I get like 150, but like, or I get like 100 or I'm getting like, you know, close to 90. But I mean, it's not like it, it, you can't get exactly what they say because of the right. router. And I'm like, whoa, easy. I'm not even there yet. If you said over <laughs> 10, <laughs> that's yeah. all I'm trying to gather. Yeah. In many ways, Jesse, you're a very advanced person, but in many ways you're, you're living in like 1998. Yeah. I, my, my router is like for I real. I, I was just, it's just incredible. I don't know whether to like send it to the Smithsonian now or like what to do with it because it seems like it's an item of that's a complete antiquity. Yeah. You just throw it in the trash. That's what you do with oh, it. Oh, is that what you do? Like there's no yeah. like special router? No. Disposal? There, actually, there probably is a museum that has old technology, but they don't need your old router. They've already got one. Just throw it in the garbage. They already got one from somebody that switched over long ago. Yeah. They've got like six generations past your router in the, in the, uh, um, so all I'm saying is help, help a brother or a sister out in any way. Maybe that's like, send a note, send a text, yeah. send them a router, whatever it is that made such a difference to me. And it's really, I'm reaping the benefits of it even now. Like I cannot tell you, it was like, I lived in a new world. Like I woke up and was like, wow, you can just click on like, I can just type in Gmail and the inter the email comes right up. <laughs> Jesse is having the same experience that all of us had like 15 years ago when we got <laughs> high speed internet after using dial up. Basically. And, and here's the thing, like I kind of needed to repent at the end of that because I was so angry with my internet provider. I was like, how dare you make me pay? For like, what well, I know it's a hundred, but you're only giving me 10. Oh, and so you could have, you could have fixed this like 10 years ago by spending like $70 <laughs> at Best Buy. I oh. know even Best Buy was like out of everything, which again, everybody's having the same experience. I am. They're like, you know, I need to beef up my, my home internet situation. I so. just, I, I just want to add one more thing. You said something about Best Buy, which made me think, uh, please, it, it makes sense in my head, but I'm not going to try to make the connection for people. Just let it out. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about how New Hampshire is a little bit of a different place on the world. Uh, how like, we're kind of like leave, leave us alone and just let us do our thing. Yes. So the governor of New Hampshire just issued a stay at home order that basically says stay at home unless you feel like going out. So like, like one of the, one of the, uh, so like all of these stay at home orders come with an accompanying document. That's like not part of the document, but it defines what you can and can't do. And I, 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 I joke you not the actual language was any other thing that the individual deems necessary for life, they can go out and do. So it was like, please stay home unless you feel like you have to go out. <laughs> If you think it's necessary to go out, then go out. But otherwise, please stay home. And it's like, why would anybody go out if they don't think it's necessary to go out? So, like, literally almost nothing has changed. The, the, the stay-at-home order went into effect on Friday night. Um, was that March 27th at, like, 11.59? But literally nothing has changed for anyone in the state other than, like, retail. This is where the connection is. Best Buy is closed now. Retail stores are closed now. Right. But, like... The, the restaurant that I pick up dinner at on Friday nights on the way home from work is still open. Like there's really no difference. So it's just funny because in in other states, there's like National Guard patrolling the streets. And if you walk out, you're getting a thousand dollar fine. Right. And in New Hampshire, the governor's like, well, you know, like maybe stay home unless you don't want to. 
then then so then go out. That's funny you say that because we, we haven't gotten so we have basically kind of the same situation here with respect to like businesses being closed and restaurants only being open for takeout. But one of the things that's been super funny that I just is something you never think about. It's like talk about what a time to be alive and it feels like you're living in a movie is the company that my wife works for is across multiple states. And one of the states in which the company operates is under the shelter in place. So she got this email where like she had to print out this like super official letter that I think like makes her now part of the FBI. Like she can just, I guess, like <laughs> show this letter and she can do whatever she wants. It just basically proves that like she works for a continuing care facility. So she has to be present there. So she need this letter to just kind of prove like she can basically go anywhere. So now I just think like she's awesome. Like I guess she can just drive around and she gets pulled over. She just whips this bad boy out. And like, I guess all I can imagine is the cop is like, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. Like, yes, please. Like your secret clearance is, you know, top level and you can do whatever you want. Do you want to get in my cop car and take that instead? Yeah. That, do you that's want what I imagine happens. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire, I get pulled over and I'm like, yeah, I just felt like going out because it's necessary for my daily life. And the cop's like, oh, okay. Since it's necessary for your daily life. Sorry. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to get in, in the way of your important business. <laughs> I feel like you're like, I just need some ice cream. And he's like, oh, by all means, I'm so sorry. Like, no, I like no that's idea. legitimate. Like, it, like one of the things was like, if you feel like you need to go to the grocery store, to buy buy food like i could go to the store and get ice cream i needed to stop at dunkin donuts to get my coffee that was necessary for my daily life oh sorry sir i didn't mean to impede your travel new hampshire <laughs> is like it's both the greatest and the weirdest state on earth I, i'm telling you <laughs> it's insane uh, i agree with that i totally agree with that well since we've already taken us on this wonderful journey of everything from COVID 19 to shelter in place to states rights <laughs> yeah yeah that seems like I was trying to find, I, you ever start a sentence hoping that somewhere in the middle of it, there will be a segue and it will lead you into the thing you want to talk about. Isn't that a thing from the office where Michael Scott's like, sometimes I start a sentence, I don't even know where it's going and I just hope I figure it out on the way. <laughs> yeah. That's actually most of my podcasting career is Pretty much. that exact sentiment. So yeah. th thanks, thanks for your affirmation of that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, should we actually get into our topic? We're doing yeah. bookcast. Thank you. So now, you, now you're going to take the segue after I did all that work <laughs> to get so, us there. So for those of you who are looking at the calendar thinking, I thought bookcast was the second uh, Wednesday of the month. <laughs> First of all, thank you for being so in tune with our calendar. I hope there's somebody out there that is actually thinking that. Cause, <laughs> They're cause like, wait a second. I'm not thinking that. Bookcast, I need to write a very strongly worded letter to Jesse and Tony that they have not kept their agreement. So, so we decided, um, that since we don't have another series going on, uh, we're going to accelerate bookcast a little bit. So we're going to, we're going to do two episodes a month. So we're going to do the second and the, uh, fourth, Sunday of the month is when we record. So whatever Wednesday is after the second and fourth Sunday is when this will launch. <laughs> so it may actually be the first Wednesday once in a while. This is great. Anyway, you'll get it when you get it. So just in case you wanted to keep up with the schedule that we're uh, working on, we're going to record the second and fourth Sunday and it will release the following Wednesday. But today we are getting out of uh, my personal comfort zone, right? Almost everything that we talked about in the last several chapters, really all of the chapters that have been sort of the historical preaching chapters, I would have been familiar with and able to speak to apart from reading the book. But now we're getting into the actual figures of the Dutch Second Reformation or the Further Reformation, which is a group of characters that I, I'm not super familiar with. So I was really excited to get into chapter 15 here, which is a chapter, and this is where we get into the, the land where we can't pronounce any of their names or any <laughs> <laughs> of the cities that they ministered in. So right. that'll be a new fun uh, drinking game for Reformed Brotherhood folks is every time Jesse and Tony uh, messes up a name, uh, then you responsibly take a shot. So yeah, we're about to butcher some names. We're, we're in chapter 15, which is Dutch preachers, and it's Tielinik, <laughs> Van Lodenstein, <laughs> and a brockel. So they'll hum us a brockel, that one I know, but the other ones... It's, it's anybody's guess whether I got that right or wrong. No, that was pretty good. V listen, can we just admit up front that these are killer names no matter what? Like Van Lodenstein? I know. It, it, that's like a video game uh, villain name, villain. but it, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, th these are amazing. This is one of the things that makes this book so great is it pushes you out. And I think almost anybody else, unless maybe your your jam is like the further Dutch Reformation or yeah. Dutch Reformed preaching in particular, you're not going to be familiar with these guys. 
But uh, I loved being reminded that there are places that are not here and there are places that are not Europe with respect to like the, the centers that we tend to gravitate towards with respect to understanding the Reformation. That guy was working in so many different places with so many different yeah. people. And so this was an encouragement of the pastors that are preaching now in this kind of tradition. But also, I love getting to know some of these guys. And we've got these three. And I just say we kind of get after it and start talking yeah. about them. Yeah. So my first, um, you know, God's providence is amazing, right? It's very rare that you look back on events uh, in history or in your own life and and don't just marvel at the way that God's brought everything together. And so it was particularly interesting to me to read about uh, Tielenich, uh, Wilhelm Tielenich, and talking about the plague, like he, he was a minister during the plague. So right. for me, it was really encouraging to read this now to see, as I said earlier, like we're not the first people that have dealt with what we're dealing with now. Um, it, in many ways, we're the first people to deal with it in an era where we actually have the capacity and the capabilities to deal with it. So we're in this sort of blessed position where we have technology, where we, you know, it doesn't replace the physical gathering of the saints, but we're still able to have communication with each other and, and some semblance of a church service, even though we're not able to physically gather. That kind of thing was unheard of even 20 or 30 years ago, the idea of like a video conference was something you would see on the Jetsons, not something that you would do on a Sunday afternoon with your brother-in-law in Pennsylvania. Right. So right. I think, um, I think it's, it was a very encouraging chapter for us, for me to read because it was kind of, it was kind of nice to see that some of the different things these guys are going through and the different figures that they are map up really nicely to some of the things going on in our current situation. Yeah, and I'm going to fanboy back into this. I didn't actually intend for this to happen entirely, but one of the things about Willem that really struck me was just like his backstory and this idea of like practical piety, which for him was a strong incentive in conversion in practice. And so I guess this guy, again, this is new to me, but he's often referred to as the father of the Dutch Further Reformation. Yeah. And he was converted apparently through exposure to the Puritan community in England. So he went and chilled there and studied there for a while, was exposed to the Puritans there. And by that personal exposure to extensive, like he stayed with the family, like family worship, private prayer, sermon discussions, Sabbath observance, fasting, spiritual fellowship, self-examination, heartfelt piety, good works. This was the thing that actually God used to bring him into relationship uh, with the father. And so I just have been really, I think even in our own day, but particularly here, blown away by how important practical personal piety is. And I mean that in the sense that like, it's both important for us as individuals, but that really that's, I think, an amazing gift that we can bring our local church is our commitment to that piety. Because if the church, of course, is just the amalgamation of all these people, if we're all pursuing that kind of piety, then when we gather together in corporate worship, it's going to be all that much more committed to the Lord Jesus Christ because we will have been preparing ourselves and our hearts and our lives in that kind of way throughout all of our hours that we spend either alone or with somebody else. So I just was like, again, blown away by like the example here because there's so much that these guys then will go on to preach and teach about where they're trying to bring together like a perfect confluence of reformed theological thought but they're really super honest. I, I think you like you let me know. I think Beaky really draws us out in this chapter. They're super honest that reformed theological thought is like not enough. Yeah. That if that is not actually embedded in your behavior, that if it's not like saturate who you are and how you live, then it doesn't matter how good and how reformed your theological thought is, but that it, what really matters is your practical piety. And so I was actually really touched by his conversion story. That's what it took. Like he literally just went and lived with a family and he was like, what is this? Yeah. What incredible thing is this? And, and God used that as the inroad into his life by which to then make f with him and from him, like an amazing preacher. Yeah. You, you're absolutely right. That, that, you know, it, it was interesting to read. We'll talk about it when we get into some of the other figures here, but it was interesting to read about some of these guys actually getting in a little bit of hot water for yeah. preaching against what that they called ref, dead reformed doctrine yes. and, and what they were talking about, you know, in, in the Netherlands, this is after the Synod of Dort in most cases, um, this sort of like scientific reformed theology had taken root. And, and there probably wasn't many people in the nation who couldn't articulate to you on some level, the doctrines of grace or, you know, elements from the Belgic confession. They were able to explain and articulate that theology but they were preaching against this idea that that theology 
was enough. And that unless right. you paired it with this experiential understanding of who God is with the, the practical piety of what, you know, these, these guys are looking at the Puritans in England who were sort of ahead of them temporarily, like they, they were ahead of them a little bit in terms of making that turn to the piety side of things. Um, unless you have that that orthopraxy to combine with your orthodoxy, um, nice. you you really don't have the whole picture. And, and you're absolutely right. They would have said, you know, just knowing the right doctrines or even uh, gasp, even just believing the right doctrines. Right. That's right. not enough. What what you need is you need to live out the reality that those doctrines point to and explain, which is obviously grounded in, in justification by faith alone in union with Christ, but in sanctification as well. And if you don't have that sanctification element, if you're not being sanctified by the spirit in a way where that actually demonstrates in your life, then you have to ask the question, Am I actually a believer? Am I actually uni united with this Christ who has promised not only to justify, but to sanctify me? That's an element that these guys really bring to the forefront that I think, you know, is missing in a lot of our reformed reflections on theology and life. I think you're right on. It's really interesting how that kind of conversation is happening in the Dutch community. Apparently it's happening in a localized place. And I found it interesting that Tielenik believed that sound doctrine could produce real fruit but it needs to be applied with appropriate logic. So something that resonates with me, this idea of that we're supposed to think through what God is teaching us. But if we do not then go to the extra step of saying, logically, how should that be applied in my life? Then almost the whole thing is for nothing. It's all lost. And I think if we're honest, like if this is, we have like a family moment, a family conversation for a second, like on the couch, we can say that of many things that the Reformed tradition is accused of in our contemporary age it's of being the kind of people that are quick with an idea or a thought, but really lack the kind of heartfelt application of what that thought should produce in our lives. Yeah. And especially in this era, like the stuff that we're going through right now, like there's a lot of people kind of browbeating others, as we said before, over, well, this is the doctrine and this is how, what, what it says, and this is what we believe without trying to really come together and synthesize. But how should that doctrine emphasize how we live then? Because it's not, it's one thing to say, well, this is an idea. This is a systematized theory of what the Bible says versus the systematized theory must comport with how Jesus modeled life as a follower of God. Yeah. And then how we bring all those things together, because we know they must exist in consummate harmony. Like nobody's saying here, Tielenik wasn't saying like, well, and that's what I love about his idea of this logic, that everything should fit together but that there should be a fitting of the way in which we live that is sensitive and loving, but does not compromise, of course, any of the doctrinal things that we're talking about that are convictions that come through the scriptures. Yeah. And so these guys seem to do this really well. I think this is where sometimes our preachers fall down in the modern context is, this, is the ability to bring this stuff together. And so there's a lot in these pages that I think we're just really encouraging with that way. Like it's almost like saying, keep after it, keep loving, keep marrying together what God has given us in the scriptures and the way in which we live that out in the minute that you separate or divorce those two things, it actually doesn't matter if you're reformed anymore yeah. because you're actually not living in the way that God would desire you to live. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come back to that idea about what it even means to be reformed in the mind of these guys. Mm. But I, I just want to read this little snippet. And then I want to read another little snippet that kind of closes out, um, you know, Beaky's section here. So on page 266, it's talking about his experience in England and it says, um, you know, he, he met this young woman named Martha Greenden, who she, he eventually married. And she was a Puritan from a Puritan family. And it says here, their impact was extensive. And it says, because together they determined to bring the Puritan way of thinking and living to the Netherlands. It says three of their sons became reformed ministers and one daughter married a minister. And then flipping over to sort of the close of this section on Tielenik here, it says the Netherlands was not as ready for Tielenik as England had been for Perkins. However, his preaching against dead orthodoxy brought him under suspicion by some of the reformed. On other hand, Arminians censored him for devotion to reformed orthodoxy and resented his popularity with the lay people. So, so I, I bring those two quotes together first to point out like his impact primarily came in the form of his family and his legacy. 
right? He he spawned, literally spawned, but he, he kind of produced these three young men who became reform ministers. And I don't know anything about them, but presumably Beaky's citing that because they went on to have fruitful ministries as well. And right. then also a young woman, he, a daughter who married a reform minister. And so even though his direct impact was not really all that great. Like Tielanik is the father of the second reformation, not because of the same kind of influence that Perkins had, right? Perkins is sort of considered the father of the English Puritan movement in a lot of ways because of his vast influence in terms of writing, in terms of teaching. Tielanik is not like that. Tielanik has this sort of grassroots uh, influence on the church itself, the lay people of the church. And through that influence on the lay people, now they're demanding the kind of preaching that Tielanik gave them. And so that right. gives rise to a generation of Dutch preachers who are meeting that demand and congregations who are no longer willing to accept the dead orthodoxy that they were getting from kind of people before that. So, you know, I, I say that to sort of bring to the front. A lot of times we as reform people, we look um, and I'm not bringing up any specific person for any specific reason, but we look at people like Matt Chandler or John Piper or, um, you know, the big names in reformed evangelicalism, right? We look at these big names who have these big platforms and we, I, I know personally, I kind of sit back and I'm like, well, what can I do? I've got this, you know, I got this little podcast that has like 700 listeners and, but then there's people who have even less of a platform than we do. What can I do? Well, what I can do is I can live a godly life united to Christ and seek to influence those in my immediate circle and in my local church. And ideally, that will then spread out to more people. Right. And, and Tielanik, I think, is a really good example of someone who lived, kind of lived that philosophy out. Is that He sought to be a faithful minister in his local congregation to influence the people he could. And he was dedicated to bringing not just Puritan theology, but a Puritan way of living to the Netherlands. So he started that by living that on himself. In a lot of ways, you know, he really reminds me reading this, the description that Beaky gives me, he really reminds me of, of your dad, like who just is a, a quiet, godly right man on. in a tiny congregation in rural New England. But the impact that he has right now, now, not that your, our podcast is anything all that special, but it's because of his influence in our life on a practical level that we're the men that we are For in, sure. in large part. And now whatever influence we have in a positive fashion is now spread out to other people, which now their positive influence. You know, we hear stories once in a while of people sharing an episode with a friend who's not reformed. And all of a sudden they've sort of started thinking about reformed theology or someone who tells me, you know, I started memorizing the Bible because you recommended this app. And now I'm really able to speak to my coworkers about things of the faith in a more articulate way. Right. That influence ultimately, well, not ultimately, but that influence traces itself back to the influence that your father has had on both me and you. Sure. And I think Tillenich's influence is very much the same thing in, in the Dutch for the Reformation. It was this, this man with a small congregation and a, you know, sort of a small influence that then ripples out like the ripples of a, you know, a, a stone thrown into a pond to influence thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. I don't think there's any way that we should really underestimate what God is doing and he's always working. And so the way in which he works in our lives, I think is, a testimony to one, his immense goodness that he would come in such a condescending way through Jesus Christ to transform us. It's also a reminder that this is, I think, the ordinary means by which he works. This idea that he transforms people, he brings them into his family, and then there's a compounding effect. Like compounding is an amazingly powerful concept. And that's what we're seeing here. And it's exactly the thing that you just described. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to throw at you that I thought was like really interesting uh, about Tielanik is he gives basically a definition for then what is a Christian? Because like you said, he was really trying to sort through and, and all these, these three gentlemen that are listed here really had a passion for preaching in a definitive and discriminatory way. That is, they weren't afraid to really divide those who were their listeners or hearers by saying some are believers and some yeah. are unbelievers. And there's a specific message within this text for both groups. And so I found this succinct definition in the chapter that Beaky brought up really helpful. And I think the more I've really pondered this might be the best way to kind of parse out or delineate the really the true Christian. And so the succinct definition that he gives in this section is from Tielanek. He says, those who grieve over sin and fight to kill it by the Holy Spirit are the true children of God. 
Yeah. And I love that definition because one, just like these gentlemen, it is biblically based and straightforward. It's a brief. And I really challenge myself with this definition. I think, can I think of a better one? And in other words, like, is there really a way to like set the scales in front of us and measure out those of us who are Christian without coming to this definition that says, do you grieve over sin? Do you want to fight to kill it by the power of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. What do you think? No, I think it's spot on. I mean, I think, you know, the the scripture uses a lot of different language about believers. And one of the metaphors or the, the word pictures that is probably one of the more common ones that I don't think that we really think of that much, probably because we live in a pretty cushy, soft generation, to be honest, is the metaphor of a, of a soldier or, or a warrior or someone yes. who's involved in combat sports, right? And so this idea that we're a, we're a soldier, that we're a warrior for Christ, not in this sort of like weird macho Mark Driscoll, I'm a warrior, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting in fist fights for the Lord, you're not really a Christian kind of a thing more in the sense that we really are in a battle and those, those who are, are not willing to be in the battle are not willing to be in the battle. And, and since the life of a Christian is the life of one who is attempting to conquer and defeat sin, if you're not willing to be in the battle, then you're not willing to be a Christian. And if you're not willing to be a Christian, then you're not a Christian. So I think it really is, it really is probably one of the better definitions and the ways to kind of think about it. Um, you know, I, I know a couple people who are in the military, and one of the things that I think marks them is the seriousness about their task as a soldier, right? right you, you very rarely hear uh, soldiers joke about war. Like, it, it, right. it's just not part of their kind of like humor vocabulary, it, at least in the, the, my interactions with with actual military soldiers. It's just not part of their vocabulary to take war, to take taking a life, to take the sort of the task of killing an enemy to take that lightly. And so sometimes I do hear Christians or people who are claiming to be Christians take the task of killing sin lightly and they joke about it. And to me that that's not a great sign. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's what's really is convicting to me about this particular definition. And I'm not trying to go like Paul Walker and everybody like this. I'm talking to you. Like I'm talking about you. It's more this idea of we, we focus so hard on like trying to differentiate those who are believers from unbelievers, including maybe ourselves. You know, even Paul says, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Yeah. And I just think the way that he articulates it here is particularly helpful because the question we should be asking ourselves is, do I grieve over sin? And then do I want to fight it? Like, how hard is my conscience? Because I think in some respect, our consciences are hard to some degree. Yeah. So we ought to be always praying that God would soften those so that we would actually feel a sense of profound sadness over our sin. That would be a godly sadness. And then that would actually result not in just the woe is me and I'm having a pity party because I feel bad that I've disappointed, I've offended the king of the universe. But there should be this kind of holy dread by way of the Holy Spirit that propels us then into fighting it, not under our own power, but through sanctification by the energy and the grace that is afforded to us through the Holy Spirit to actually go to war over it and to go to war over it regularly, like to recognize that tomorrow I'm going to get up and that's also going to be a hard day. But because God is with me, because God is for me, because he's given me his Holy Spirit to indwell within me, that there's a seriousness of my energy that I may commit myself because of that energy into fighting against the flesh. And so I think this is just helpful because as opposed to saying like, did you, did you pray a prayer? Were you really sincere? Were you contrite enough? That's not what we're after here. It's, I think this idea of, are you grieving your sin? And are there sins maybe that you grieve to like varying magnitude? In other words, like there's some that you kind of just let slide and you're like, yeah, I get it. Like I I continue to fall into that rut and I have good reason or there's all kinds of other, you know, exogenous circumstances that push upon me that sometimes compel me to behave in this way. It's this idea of no, are you, how sad are you in a sense? Not because you're trying meritoriously to kind of earn some sense of forgiveness, but because you recognize that an offense, even a small offense against the greatest one in the universe is worthy of some kind of sadness that should propel us forward to fight against it. So I just think it was like in, in, I would say the same way that kind of Beaky argues that these guys tend to cut through a lot of nonsense with the clarity. I found this to be this, the kind of the same, in the same vein, super, super clear. And yeah. I was like, man, that's the kind of test. That's the litmus test I should be upholding on my own life is, am I grieving over sin? I mean, it's very John Owen, right? Again, talking about yeah. red boots. <laughs> it's 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I think one of the ways to determine whether you're in the sweet spot of the balance between justification by grace alone through faith alone and the Christian's duty and responsibility to persevere and to improve in good works is yeah. if you're getting accused of antinomianism by the legalists and by legalism of the antinomians, like if, if you're getting accused <laughs> on both sides, yeah. you're probably doing something right. Agreed. And, and I say that because it's funny because right after we did our Lordship Salvation series, uh, you know, we did a couple episodes in a row where we sort of talked about that. I got accused by a lot of people of being an antinomian, but it's funny because the other quote from our, our episodes from our show that I get the most heat about, and you're, you're going to roll your eyes at this because I know you've actually referenced it before is when I said that the life of the Christian is try harder and do better. Like, so, <laughs> so we're on both it. sides. And, and that's where I think that these, these Dutch second reformation preachers are, is, yeah. and, and the Puritans are, right? The Puritans get this rap for being legalistic, no fun, kind of like wet blankets. But the reality is like, there's nobody on the planet who took more joy in the free gospel, the free yes. grace of Jesus Christ than, than the Puritans. Like John Owen, when you read him talking about the gospel, it just warms your soul. John Edward, Jonathan Edwards is the same thing. Like it just warms your soul to hear Jonathan Edwards talk about how heaven is a place of love. Right. right. But then at the same time, you know, you're a spider hanging over a fire. You're about to plunge into the depths. Like there's this balance. It's not even really a balance. It's it's these two realities that at first blush seem contradictory, but in the truth of the gospel are are presented equally important and equally real right next to each other. And that's that's in many ways the mystery of the gospel is that these two things that seem opposite actually are both true. And that's why the answer to antinomianism is not legalism. And the answer to legalism is not antinomianism. The answer to both is the gospel, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has not only done what he needs to do to bring you into his family, but he's also done what he needs to do to make you a part of the family that fits in. Right. You know, one of the funny things, funny story that I tell people about being kind of a transplant from Minneapolis or from the Midwest to New England is one of the first time actually was the first time that I came home to meet your parents uh, with my wife, uh, who was obviously not my wife at the time. Um, Your your mother prepared this meal. There were several of us from seminary. It was kind of the first reading week. And she asked me if I wanted more biscuits. And in Minneapolis or in the Midwest, it's very common etiquette to say no when someone offers you something and then they kind of persist and they go, are you sure you don't want more? And you say, Oh no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't take another bite. And they go, Oh, but really I insist that you have another one. And this goes back and forth for a little while until both parties are satisfied. And then whoever, whoever really wants to go, like I might say, Oh yeah, yeah I will have one. Right. Well, the first time I came home, your mom says, do you, do you want another biscuit? And I go, Oh no, I couldn't eat another bite. So she just wrapped it up and put it away. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, like that's, that's the way this is, is that right. just like marrying your sister did what was necessary to make me a part of the family. There was this whole other element that happened that made it so I fit in with the family. And that in a lot of ways is what sanctification is, is justification brings us or adoption rather, but justification and adoption brings us into the family But sanctification is what makes us look like Jesus and makes us fit in with the family. And I think that's what this, this, this trio of people, and we're not even going to get to the other two, you know, in any depth, but this trio of figures really emphasizes is that it's not just that God saves you from your sin, but he redeems you unto a glorious sanctification that makes you look like his beloved son. And I, I think that's just the Puritans, these sort of Dutch Puritans, if you want to call them that, that's where they are so strong that I think a lot of our modern preaching just misses is that it's not an either or it has to be a both and, or you don't have the Christian faith. And that's a lot of what draws all three of these guys together. One of the things I want to mention, because I think it's right on with what you said is one of the things that impressed me about Van Lodenstein, besides his super sweet name, was that he viewed the Reformation as incomplete. And Beaky talks about how he used kind of this example of Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. The Reformation renewed good doctrines, but these doctrines were only the bare bones of a skeleton on which flesh was yet needed. That was this idea of taking them and God using them toward sanctification. That, And this is a quote from page 273. I love this. This should be a bumper sticker. Reformation without transformation 
is defamation. Yeah. I mean, that's just like a really beautiful expression of how we ought to be careful about how we use these reformation principles if they have not actually transformed us in such a way that it does change who we are by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, then it is just a way of defaming these principles of God because they do respect and reflect his character in some way. And so we really ought to be careful how we use them. In my, I think in my thinking, this is very connected to me for like the, the third commandment. There is a way in which we can use the Lord's name in vain and everything that he represents by trying to becoming the kind of people that are just egg-headed without respect to actually living this out. And so I've just really been impacted by the way in which these are in many ways, simple men, but what they're doing is they're living out simply the truth of the gospel. And that's the thing that I think is so ironic for me is it's easy. Really, it's almost easy. Like anybody could, I think, suffer through a high level theological course in something and get a lot out of it. I think that they would, there's no doubt that they would be able to basically give a lot of intellectual scent to a lot of knowledge, but it's the idea that the Bible is oftentimes difficult to live out and certainly impossible to live out without the Holy spirit. And that's the part where to your point of the, when we say try harder Christian, it's not of course, try harder under your own power, try harder because you want to pull up your own spiritual intellectual bootstraps because of your, with your own strength. It's, rest and lean in more closely to Christ and then follow more closely to him. Even if that's in a way that seems like not only countercultural, but counterproductive in terms of what society, how society would judge the behavior. That's the difficult part. And that's the part where I think even myself, especially included, like need to really go after that with some type of gusto. The question is like, how much energy do we commit to that type of thing? Cause we commit yeah. a lot of energy to a lot of different things. And many of those things are self-centered or hobby focused how much do we really commit our energies into that thing? And that's where like, I think if we're honest, it's easy to like throw the flag on the play and say like, Oh, this is just like antinomian. Like you're just being too ridiculous. Um, But when you say like, listen, let's talk about like where you really focus your energy, your time, your efforts, your concentration. Is it toward holiness? I mean, that's a place where I, I fall under a heavy amount of conviction. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, this is where, um, I'll expose my own uh, faults a little here is is it's easy for me to take pride in the fact of being reformed. And this this quote that I'm about to read really kind of like, do you ever have one of those quotes to read it? It just kind of levels you a little bit and you kind of sure. just kind of puts you in your place. For sure. This is this is what um, what uh, Van Lodenstein here says. And uh, he says and this is kind of a quote from another writer's works and it's sliced up. So I don't know what of it is his and what's not, but I'm reading from page 274 and it says here, in fact, he appeared to have been the first author to employ the language of ever being reformed, saying that a wise man would not have called the reformed church reformata or reformed, but reformanda or being reformed for to be always thus occupied would produce a pure church precise in truth and holy in practice. Now I I get that the term reformed has utility, right? There's, there's a utility with having a concise term that describes a whole complex of truths and realities so that you don't have to explain every point of doctrine every time you want to describe yourself. So I'm not, I'm not railing against the label reformed, but, and we've talked about this a little bit before when we think of ourselves as reformed with the past tense, there's an element of that that we're kind of saying and kind of acting like, well, we've arrived, like yes. we're reformed. But in reality, maybe it would be better as Van Lodenstein or, or Beaky or whatever, as they would suggest, instead of thinking ourselves as reformed, to be thinking of ourselves as a reforming church or I'm a, I'm I'm of the reforming tradition. I mean, that's that's clunky to say, and I'm not I don't, like we're never going to change the way that the language is used. But if we think of ourselves more along that lines of I'm I'm a person who seeks to live my life for the glory of God. And, and one of the main ways that I do that on this side of, of glory is by living a life that's dedicated to being reformed by the word of God in all areas of my life, both in, in the renewal of my mind in the holiness of my conduct, in the way that I speak, in the way that I talk, if we're committed to being, being reformed by the scriptures, and that's, that's our rule of life, 
that would really change, I think, the way that we look at the world and how we think of things. And that's just another one of those things that I think these this trio here really gets so right that even in the Puritans, we don't we don't see this way of thinking and talking that much. Right. Not that they weren't thinking about it that way, but they don't talk about that as much. I think probably the historical quirk of the fact that the churches in the Netherlands were called the Reformed Churches they were commenting on that terminology more than we were seeing in England. But I think that's something we really have lost as we've sort of made reformed, like that label, that that moniker reformed, sort of a measure of orthodoxy. There's nothing wrong with using a label. But when we when we think or act as though we've kind of arrived because we, we can claim this label, I think we're on the wrong footing. Man, that's how you draw a podcast to a conclusion right there. <laughs> I feel bad because we didn't talk about a broccoli. <laughs> we like well, forgot a whole guy. I mean, hopefully what we've done is like create some bit of like a teaser. I really hope that people are not feeling intimidated. Like, oh my goodness, Tony and Jesse are, you know, X way through this book. Like you can pick it up at any time and jump into any one of these chapters. Yeah. And there's so much like deleted scenes that we've left on like the cutting room floor here that we just can't get to because... Of course, the book is going to be better than what we're talking about, about the book. So I'm yeah. hoping that it's still driving people uh, toward him as a resource. So yeah, pick up Reform Preaching. We say it every time. There's no bad time to jump into it. You, we're in chapter 15, but we're going to do these a little bit more frequently. So now is, as ever, a good time to jump in. Yeah. Can I say one thing about Abraco before we wrap up? Because I, No. I, oh, fine then. I've been <laughs> no, overruled. I'm just kidding, of course. So, Go ahead. Go ahead. Have you read any of the Christian's Regional Service, his big four-volume yes, four system? I have. Just so, not the whole thing. Yeah, well, it's it's a monster. It, it's longer than uh, Bavink is. Uh, it's easier yes. to read than Bavink, but it's it's longer than Bavink. But here's what amazes me, okay? This, this is the difference between the church of yesteryears. You know, it's not the case that there was ever a golden age in the church. Every age of Christianity has its downfalls. And we, we even read about some of them in here that as great as these guys were, as awesome as their congregations were, uh, they dealt with the same kinds of issues as we do. Slack Sabbath observance, carnal living, all that stuff was present. Right. It's present. But it's amazing to me that Wilhelmus Abraco, the Christian's Reasonable Service, which most of us in our age now would probably pick up and read and we think this is a pretty technical theology. We really, you know, this is really for like the academic theologian. This is something that fathers would read to their children right. at, at bedtime as like a, like an evening <laughs> devotionals. They would read through this systematic theology. And this is what I think is so amazing is they'd get done with it. They'd, they'd read it and they get done with it and they just start over. <laughs> like th this is how ingrained into the, the fabric of society. And, and I haven't, I haven't verified this, but according to Dr. Beaky, who is very in the know about Dutch culture now, it's still the case that Dutch families read, we read a brothel to their kids at night as like a bedtime story. So right. I just think that's amazing. And, and you know, it's one of those things that I'm, I love systematic theology. No one would be surprised by me saying that, but I wish that people had an, an experiential love of systematic theology the way that I do. I read systematic theology devotionally because that's how I feel like I connect to God is by being able to, to really contemplate what he has taught in scripture comprehensively. That's really the heart of systematic theology, right? And, and a brockle, if we don't say anything else about him, a Christian's reasonable source, I haven't read the whole thing either, but, but from what I've read, that's really at the heart of it. It's not, it's titled the way it is for a reason. The systematic theology that Abraco is putting forward is not some eggheaded, uh, academic, hypothetical theology. It's a practical theology. And here's the kicker. It is eggheaded and technical, but that's what's practical about it is that right, exactly. it's the science of living for God is how, you know, that's how Ben Maastricht defines uh, systematic theology. But for Abraco, this is the, this is the lifeblood of the Christian is understanding what to, to borrow the words of the, the Westminster catechism, what God has taught concerning himself, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That is the summary of what the scripture teaches. And that's what a Brockle systematic theology is getting at is to, to encapsulate that and to package it in a way that's useful for the layperson. Man, how far have we fallen where we read something that was, was read to children as bedtime, bedtime reading. And we read it. And we're like, Oh man, this is too hard. 
Right. I mean, we talked about even just the benefit of like, even if you feel that way about some of this stuff, like reading above your level, reading over your head, how helpful yeah. that is. But I'm with you. Like it's, it's hard. I recall, I wrestle with this, this idea of in this time, these fathers were in, and mothers were picking this up and using this as like basic instruction. And that's the way he wrote it. It was supposed to be lay level with practical yep. ethics and personal devotion. And we're like, Oh my word, was this like a textbook or something? Like yeah. I can't make my way through this. And so there is like, how do we understand that? How have things changed? Is it about the time and place in which it was written and the understanding literacy and understanding of the people, like all that's in play, but at the bottom line, it was rent, it was made to be and written for as a, like a tool. Yeah. And, like, isn't he's the guy that I think uh, Beaky goes to great lengths to say, like, even people still refer to him as like father of Brackle, right? Father Brackle, they, yeah. Yeah, they held him in such esteem as like, he was like a father gives good instruction, plain instruction, helpful and loving and direction to his children. So also he did that through the Christian's reasonable service. So I would definitely recommend that text. I have not read the entirety of it, but there's no part of it that I've read where I haven't been like, wow, this is profound and yeah. beautiful and really helpful. And maybe that's what we're trying to kind of cry out for here is, and I'm saying this really mainly to myself first, what we really need right now are Christians like that. Yeah. Where like all of the theology is represented in reasonable service, not just in what they know and how well they can debate online, but in their ability to actually live it out. And it's one thing to like know Christ, to know God as the one who is not changing, who is immutable, who is the one who is sovereign in control. It's another thing in the midst of like COVID-19 to be able to live in such a way through reasonable service to others that you are experientially de- demonstrating that truth. That's the, that's the rub I think for me is... Yeah. How can we live in that way? And it's not that maybe we're reticent to reflect that in the way in which we act. But I think part of the question is, how do I make sure that the way I'm living reflects that truth? Like we have to be volitional in saying, it's not that we are trying to not live that out, but how do we make sure that we are living that out? Like, does that make sense? Like, I don't think Christians are like necessarily combative. Like, well, I just want to understand the truth, but I don't want to do anything with it. There are some people like that. But I think for us to really be pushing into, how do I make sure I'm sucking all of that wonderful truth into the way in which I behave, how I think, how I interact with my wife or my spouse, how I then go out and interact with people when I'm doing all these conference calls online because we're all separated. How can I make sure that the Christian's reasonable service is being reflected in how I just do my day-to-day living? Yeah. I think that's the really hard part and where we need to be challenged. Yeah, you know, one last closing thought before we we wrap up here is, you know, sometimes we hear like, like we, if you're involved in discussions with kind of like your general mainstream evangelicals who aren't fans of systematic theology, you know, the response that we often give is like, well, you would never be able to say you truly love your wife if you knew if you knew no facts about her. Right. If you, if you never appropriated her favorite color or the color of her eyes or what kind of food she likes or what kind of music, like if you never appropriated these facts about her, not only could you not say that you would you not be able to say that you truly love her, you wouldn't even really be able to say that you know who she is. Well, on the flip side, reform people, I think, and I'll speak to myself, sometimes we're guilty of doing kind of the opposite of that, where we well, all we do is learn facts. All I do is learn what kind of food she likes, but I never make that for her for dinner. All I do is learn what her favorite flower is, but I never buy her that when I'm at the supermarket. And so so there's this fusion. And this is where I think the Dutch Second Reformation, even more so, I think, in some ways than the Puritans in England, but the Dutch Further Reformation, they fuse those two realities of you know, using this analogy of learning what my fa- what my wife's favorite flowers are, which my wife doesn't have a favorite flowers, by the way, but learning what her favorite flowers are and then actually buying her those flowers like those two poles of action and knowledge have to come together in some sort of meeting in the middle. If I want to be able to say that I truly have loved her using that knowledge and that action. And, and I think that's what is so strong about these guys is that it, it's all about this and th- this is the heart of what Beaky and others are talking about when they talk about experiential theology, right? It's a theology that knows true facts about God and reacts to those true facts in in appropriate devotion according to the way that God has prescribed that we worship Him. That's Amen. the heart of experiential theology, and that's really that's why it's the heart of ex- of reformed experiential preaching is because that's the heart of what it means to be a Christian to love God by knowing who he is and acting accordingly. Right on.
There's no soft stuff here, loved ones. That's yeah. a really good word. That, that, for the second time, is the way that you draw a podcast to a close. <laughs> well, I wish we could say we're drawing it to a close. We have one more thing we have to do. Yes, you're right. I'm so thankful. Listen, you and I are on the same page, like always. <laughs> we're just like crushing the podcast Sometimes, game. literally, there was times where I was about to pull up a quote and you started reading it. Like literally <laughs> the same more times. page. I, know. I think that sometimes people have this idea that like some parts of this are scripted. No, I cannot emphasize enough. There are zero parts of this podcast that are scripted. Yeah. yeah. We're lucky. As, as we said last, we were lucky if we actually get the episode number right on the first try. That is consist that exhausts the entirety of our pre podcast discussion, yes. which is what hey, episode is this? What episode number is yeah. this? So that's actually a great segue though. We gave out a couple of competitions. So we were coming up on this episode 179 is meaningful to us. And hopefully listen to last week where you heard Les come on. It was great to have him. And so we disclosed that really the reason why we're making such a big deal about 179 is that would be one episode more than the other podcast, the reformed pubcast has recorded. And so this is 180. We surpassed that. And you issued in addition to can somebody guess the actual reason you issued a challenge, which was somebody give us a funny reason for why 179 might be significant. And I'm happy to say you and I had extensive deliberations. <laughs> we, we called several councils together. We did. We met, we, we reasoned together, we debated, we argued, we looked through many responses that we've got and we settled on a winner. Yes. Are you... <laughs> I need to look up a drum roll, like a, a noise. I'll just do it on my desk. Yeah, that's even better. So the, oh, let me give you the winner first. The winner is Mark Rupert is going to be the brand new owner of a new Reformed Brotherhood Stein, which again, I don't, I don't know if the, the, like the Dutch rock the Steins. I think they do. Yeah. So it feels, it feels appropriate for this episode, yeah. right? Everybody's got to drink beer and something. Yeah. Or coffee. I mean, you can use it. This is the kind of thing you should be using at home during your conference calls now, since we're all probably separated from one another. But yes, the, the challenge was to give a humorous reason for why 179 was significant. And here's the reason Mark Rupert, who won the challenge, gave. He says, and I quote, it's because Jesse will have been doing a podcast longer than Les and Tanner and still not become Presbyterian. End quote. <laughs> Sounds like a challenge. So I'm coming for you, brother. <laughs> yeah, well, it does sound like a challenge. And I accept that challenge now, uh, Mark, because I feel listless and without purpose. Because, like, what's our next target? For the longest time, like, the target was 179. Yeah, I would say it's it's got to be 500. I'd say it's Reform Forum, but, I mean, they, they're still going, so... We'll have to start doing multiple episodes a week if we want to catch up with them. <laughs> yeah, seriously. We'd have to do like five episodes a week for the next two years to catch up to them. I st Actually, yeah. I still think we probably wouldn't catch up. You're the no, math guy, so we'll figure that out. I'll have my people crazy. calculate that and call your people. Yeah, please do. We'll do that as part of one of our pre-meetings. So congratulations to our brother, Mark Rupert. Appreciate everybody who sent in so many hilarious reasons for why 179 was significant. A lot of them surprisingly had to do with me not being Presbyterian. So <laughs> there is a theme there. Yeah. I'm, I'm beginning as a result of this process where we were kind of cataloging the episodes that are significant and we're reaching these milestones. I'm realizing just how many things I say over and over again. And you notice I did not use two words in this podcast <laughs> because I've been called out up for using them so often. It's so okay. I'm not... I'm retiring them. I'm going to try to retire them. Well, you know what Bring they new say. Words in. Intent precedes content. <laughs> Why? Now I got to retire that thing. Oh, now I, I got to feel like every time I want to say that, like people are just thinking, oh, here goes Jesse again. He's saying here the comes intent again. thing. Yeah. Well, Jesse, one thing that we always say, or at least we try to, sometimes we mess <laughs> it up, is until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>